Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Ashley Hernandez. She is the ACES Aware Project Manager for the Network of Care Project in Fresno, California. And we're going to be talking today about intergenerational trauma, immigration, and oppression and the intersectionality of these things and how they impact us through our adverse childhood experiences and how we can heal from them even after trauma that crosses generations. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please contact me at contact at drbconnections.com Or if you just want to know more about me, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. All right, everybody, let's get started. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, Dr. B. Thank you for allowing me to be a guest on your podcast. I am so excited to be here. And I love that you talked about the intersections of intergenerational trauma and immigration and oppression. What is so interesting about this is that me, myself, I did not immigrate from Mexico. It was actually five generations ago. So what I love about this intersection is that still today I can feel and manifest that trauma through the immigration that occurred so long ago. I mean, we're talking early 1900s in Chihuahua, Mexico. My great-grandfather was migrating and escaping war Mm. in Mexico. So thinking about that and how that manifested, I never had the chance Mm. to meet him. But how that manifested today in 2021 (laughs) is really speaks to how intergenerational trauma works. Wow. Wow. I, I can completely see how the things that are going on today absolutely would activate that intergenerational experience from almost a hundred years ago. Like it's, it's classic and how important it is that we have the ability to have open, honest conversations so we can heal and just acknowledge that, that there's an impact on us, that it's, that that's okay. And, and it really honors the person who 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 made the journey who made the first journey mm. because even though you never got to meet this person this relative of yours they live on through you and all the people in between you and him yeah. 
Ashley, did you have to do much digging to find out about this story? Was it kind of a common, common story among your family? Oh, Seth, I love that you asked that question because this is such an amazing story that I actually did not find out until I was an adult. Oh, wow. I was really lucky to be connected to my great-grandpa, and he was actually not from Mexico, but his father was from Chihuahua, Mexico. And during Thanksgiving one day, we were sitting at the table, and I knew that we were coming towards his end of life, so we were already preparing for that. But what I wanted to know is just a little bit more about my history and my ancestral roots. Mm -hmm. Like, where is my heritage from? You know, a little bit more about our story from Chihuahua, Mexico, because I'm so far removed from five generations ago. And he was like, well, let me tell you. And it ended up being like a six hour, five hour conversation. But what he told me was actually that his father and great-grandfather were from Chihuahua, Mexico, and we come from a long mm. line of horse breakers. So I know that we would find wild horses and then tame them and make sure that they were able to ride. And during the um, Revolutionary, Mexican Revolutionary War, Pancho Villa actually came to Chihuahua, Mexico. And Chihuahua, Mexico is very famous for their like canyons. And he wanted to hide there, but when he found my great grandpa, my great great grandpa, my great great uncle, he wanted them to be a part of his team so they could break horses. So they mm. ended up reluctantly joining him. They didn't want to, they were forced and ended up mm. fleeing him and trying to escape being a part of this war by immigrating to Texas. Wow. But when they were in Texas, they realized that there wasn't a lot of work available for them. And they ended up coming to California be to become migrant workers and go from picking cotton in California all the way up to Washington to pick apples. So that's how we ended up wow. in the small town of Corcoran, California. And my grandmother and mother were born there. Wow. So when does the movie come out? Because that needs to be a movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. Wow. And in uh, where are you located right now? I actually live in San Luis Obispo County in a small little town called Templeton. It's near the beach. Yes, wow. it is. Much clo <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's closer than Fresno to the beach. But. That's awesome. Um, and yeah. what does your day-to-day uh, -day look like? What do, you, what do you do there? Well, I'm very lucky to live near the beach, but unfortunately, when you live next to it, I feel like you don't go to it as much. <laughs> I feel like some of my my family and friends from Fresno visit the beach more than I do. But I my day-to-day -day is basically just working. I have a beautiful family, my husband, Martine, and my son, Noah. He's three years or four years old. And he is about to start kindergarten soon. Oh, so we're wow. preparing for kindergarten. That's great. So one of the things that we know about adverse childhood experiences and trauma, in particular intergenerational trauma, that we often don't highlight as much is the trauma from the past. And like, like you're talking about here, five generations ago, impact every single generation a little bit differently. So the stories shift and change, but the trauma is shared and passed forward. 
as some people heal in certain ways, and yet then other people may not and maybe exacerbate the trauma in other ways. We just don't know. Different people respond to this sort of mysterious story that has such a gigantic impact on their lives, and yet it's it's in a weird way invisible. Does that make sense? Yes, that totally makes sense. And I think the more that I learned about my past and my generations of history, that I had like that aha moment of like, mm. this is why things occurred in my life. This is, and I like connected all the dots. I actually like drew a genogram and I'm like, okay, this person's from here. And I'm like in this chart of all the trauma and things that we've all experienced, both on a systemic level and then an interpersonal level. Wow. Okay. So that's so awesome because it speaks to what I love to say around story is that when we know our story from others and from ourselves and we're able to put it together to describe our lives, that's such a healing part of everything. And so to make it a visual you know, document in a sense is really so powerful. And we had a little brief conversation and you know how I feel about babies because, you know, I'm just a a baby head. Um, And I know you have that sweet little Noah. So, um, and, and that your relationship to being a mother is so powerful to your healing process, which I always say the heart of, healing and resilience is in a relationship. And oftentimes that relationship includes a loving adult caregiver and or a very young child. So you want to talk a little bit about about Noah and, yes. and being a mama? Yes, yes. Of course you I do. I do. <laughs> Any chance that I get to talk about this little guy, I will. But yes, so for the sake of transparency, I do believe that It's so important to talk about your trauma and share your story because someone could be listening that has a similar story. And then that can speak to them and have them maybe not feel alone. So when I had Noah, I really, I had to come to terms with everything that had happened in my life and really think about, and this is where sometimes I cry when I talk about it, but I'm coming to terms with crying because it's okay. That's Um, okay. But I, I had to come to terms with like, oh my gosh, there's this little human in this world that I have brought into the world and bad things can happen to him and that I can't do anything about it. This, this is just the world. This is the world. And it almost gave me like postpartum anxiety of just what are all the things that can happen? But that was my own trauma that was coming forward. Mm-hmm. And it really impacted the way that I parented him in the first six months. Like I didn't want anyone to hold him. I didn't want anyone to touch him. I didn't want him to bond with anyone else outside of myself because I felt like, oh my gosh, someone could harm my child. Mm. But it forced me to look into the mirror and to realize that if I don't change the way that I am behaving, that Noah's not going to have relationships and grow with other people who love him more than life itself. And that's not fair to my child. So I had to just really pursue therapy, pursue personal growth, self-care, and think about how I can change the trajectory of my own trauma and not inflicting it onto my child. And I'm not perfect. I mean, I see it manifest in different ways all the time, but at least I'm at the point where I can recognize it 
mm-hmm. process it, think about where it came from, and hold space for myself to let that be okay, but try not to do it again. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Ashley. Yeah. I, I'd like to back up just a second for those people out there that are like, hold on, what is this intergenerational trauma thing? How does that work? Why is that a thing? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, could you speak on that a little bit and, and kind of catch those people up to speed? So for those of you trying to like really wrap your head around this idea of, oh my goodness, how in the world can past generations who experience trauma impact my present life or my present relationships? I don't get that. Well, it does because who we are comes from what we experience and who we love and who love us. And so all of those things get tangled together, which is a good thing because that makes us all who we are. However, those people who love us and who we love and who have had their own experiences sometimes, pretty much always, have their own story. And it often includes some trauma sometimes really very, very complex trauma, especially when, and I want to add this into our conversation, especially when it includes certain kinds of oppression that are really systemic. They're not even necessarily just, you know, the obvious kind of oppression that we can attend to, that we can pay attention to, like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened. Mm but the kind of oppression that actually lives in the world in in an invisible way to a lot of people. So intergenerational trauma is what we carry forward through our loving relationships and our just any relationships that we then experience and live out someone else's experience. Mm -hmm. And so we all have a version of what our ancestors' trauma, you know, looked like, felt like. You know, I often share about my mom being a taught, like she wasn't even two years old when her mama died. There's no way that she could then be a mama who didn't, who was raised without a loving mama. Like it, Mm. that's her intergenerational trauma being carried forward. There. Thank you so much for being honest and brave enough, Ashley, to share about your ACE score and that, you know, that it's high. And Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey just wrote a book, and it's coming out in the next few weeks or something called What Happened to You? Instead of, you know, What's Wrong With Me? You know, it's a it's a flip of the switch in terms of all these things in the world happen to us. And it doesn't make us bad people or make something wrong with mm-hmm. us. We can take, this is the resiliency of, and the optimism of the world is that with enough support, we can heal and we can be aware and have really cool conversations with people so that it doesn't have to be a secret mm-hmm. or it doesn't have to be negative. We can flip it over into making it into a positive story about who we are and then what we want to pass on to our littles like noah and whoever you know and then the next and then the next generation because someday you'll be the 
Abuela. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so wild to think about. Yeah. I love that it's, you talked about oppression and how that intersects with trauma because I definitely can see that in just every single line of my his, of my ancestral history. Um, for example, you know, my my like I mentioned, my grand great great grandparents moved to Corcoran, California, and there it was the farm workers and the farm owners. So mm. you can there is definitely a divide between where you were um, in terms of so, socioeconomic class or socioeconomic status, and even the opportunities that were granted to people then. So when I look at like my grandma. She was in school and she tells me that her shoes were always, she'd have the same shoes for three years. She mm. showed me a picture of her in like the third grade. Her her little dress has all these missing buttons and it's just mm. all dirty. And, mm. and I think about her going to school and she tells me she had to learn English through school. And the way that she learned is whenever she spoke Spanish, her teacher would slap her in the mouth and put her desk outside in the cold. Oh my. So think about, and and how I can relate that to my experience now is I wasn't taught Spanish. And I'm like, grandma, wow. you are a Spanish translator in the hospitals as your profession. Why didn't you teach me Spanish? Mm. And she's like, oh, mija, you don't know? Like, I, I thought I was doing you a favor by not teaching you Spanish because I thought maybe you would be treated differently and I didn't want you to be treated like me. And I'm like, Grandma, that is a benefit. I could make more money by <laughs> yeah. knowing Spanish. I need to know. But it, you you look at that trauma and how that, how that just came through towards different generations. Still today, as someone who's three generations later, I'm experiencing that yeah. through her. So that's... That's one scenario in which uh, that intergenerational trauma shows up. What What are some other areas that you find in your personal life that are perhaps a little bit more subtle or just you're, you're beginning to realize are affecting your day to day? So I'm, I'm really getting into like holistic healing because I think that everyone's experience with trauma is a journey and no no journey looks the same. Mm-hmm. For me, anxiety or um, feelings of trauma really come through my body. Um, I can feel my heart beating. My throat feels like it's it's filling up. Sometimes it makes me want to scream or it makes me want to yell because I I can literally feel this trauma coming out of my mouth. And as a child, and this is what I always I I like point it back to is as a child I always felt like I didn't have a voice or I didn't have a say in the trauma that I was experiencing, and that mm. definitely comes through my throat. It comes in from my chest into my throat. And it's literally, I think, from being a child and not having any word or say in anything I was experiencing. So ways that I um, try to create a calming space for myself is to just recognize where it's coming from, just take some deep breaths, Mm. and let sometimes that happen. And what I found really helpful for me is doing cardio kickboxing. I love it. <laughs> it allows me to get that anxiety and stress out. Yeah. And something about punching a, a, a punch bag really helps. So if yeah. anyone's experiencing trauma out there, I <laughs> recommend cardio <laughs> kickboxing. That's my shameless plug. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine on some awesome. level, it's it's tapping into some deeper layers of that anxiety and anger. And you're able to actually mm-hmm. bodily express that instead of just think about it. Yeah. 
I want to say something too about that. And it is that how you talk about being a little girl and not having a voice and then how today as even as a young woman in a you know, you're in a powerful position in your in your work. I you know, I mean I'm sure it doesn't always feel that way, but voice is so important. And so when we recognize that we're having an experience from childhood in our adult lives, just owning that and knowing it is so healing and powerful because then it allows us to pick up whatever it is we want to do, whatever tool we have. And for you, it's kickboxing, you know, for Seth, it's music for, you know, for, for me, it would be surfing, you know, like we all pick up our tools and then we go, oh yeah, it's okay. I was a little helpless kid, but now I'm not. Now I'm a grown up and I can do things in a, in a powerful way and I can empower others, especially our littles. So I love that you, I love that you spoke about that feeling of just kind of almost being choked up and it coming from way, way back. It's not the now, it's the way, way back. Yeah. yeah. And I think it takes such a long time to just get to that place, that scary, vulnerable place of recognizing this is the little child in me. This is like mm-hmm. the five-year-old Ashley that's coming out right now. It took so long for me to admit it. And I knew it for a long time. I knew that I was reacting like childish or it may be like perceived as immature but it was this little five to ten year old Ashley that was like I need a voice I need to take control of this trauma and these things that are happening to me so to come to terms with that took so long to just accept that Ashley does little five-year-old or ten-year-old Ashley deserves a voice and Mm -hmm. as an adult how can I give that power back And in all of my work I do with survivors of trauma, it is so important for me to make sure that they are driving their own will. Never inserting like my opinion. I may think, oh, this would be better for them or this would be the best route, but allowing survivors to just have a voice, regardless if they have ACE or not, but just having a voice in the situation, giving back that autonomy and power again Mm -hmm. is, one of the most ways I think you can be a survivor-focused, trauma-informed person in helping anyone experiencing trauma. I have one, I want to make a comparison. Your your grandfather, right, was a migrant farm worker. Yes. Your grandfather was a migrant farm worker and they moved to here. No, no, no. Corcoran, California, and then traveled up and down the uh, the the Western United States in order to pick cotton and apples and probably lettuce and in between. So what's interesting and this is what's so important to understand about disparity and privilege and power and difference is that my father also my father migrated during the Dust Bowl. But my father was white. My father was a male. My father picked cotton in a little town not far from Corcoran, but it was called Huron, California. So he also was a farm worker, but he had so much more power and privilege just because 
He was already a U.S. citizen. He was white and he was male. So it was more like a stepping stone for him, which did allow him to then join the military and move on with his life. Where the oppression comes in is it with the example of what would be the probably a parallel person as Ashley's grandfather, where he got stuck due to this arbitrary characteristic of race. And it, this, you know, and that, that it wasn't a level playing field. And that's not my father's fault. And that's not her grandfather's fault. That's what systemic difference is. And we have to acknowledge that what we can do now is recognize it and we pull everyone forward together in ways. And we don't blame anybody for that. We just recognize it and own it. And that's how we move away from oppressing groups that are marginalized based on something that's arbitrary, like race or gender or sexual orientation or gender identity or religion or, you know, anything that's that's different or viewed as different to dominant culture. I, I think that's such an important point of like of getting rid of the blame game. I mean, it's. My my grandma uh, grew up in Denmark during Nazi occupation, and wow. so, so she doesn't tell a lot of stories. But um, there are a few that I've heard that are just no child should have to watch that happen, and that has shown up in a lot of repressed anger and just repressed emotion in general in my family. And it's it, yes, it's frustrating that I can't connect with certain family members on a level that I want to connect with. But it's also like that what my grandma had to do and my grandpa, because that's where they met, was in was in Denmark. But they had to they had to shut down their emotions in order to survive, in order to keep going. And I think that really you you can't blame someone for trying to survive. Emotions create a sense of drag because they're they're slower than our instinctual response. But emotions is what creates meaning. Emotions show us what we value, what is important to us. So in a survival situation, you, you don't have time for that. It's about safety. It's about food. It's about protecting those you love, right? And so, yeah, I could be angry at my parents, my grandparents for not getting the proper help. But it's, um, I've just had to work that out on my own, right? There's, and that's where you can blame as many people as you want. And yes, there's a certain level of um, accountability that needs to be had. But really, at the end of the day, it's about your work. You have to do the work. You can't make anyone see anything or do anything, or you can't make anyone go to therapy. I mean, I guess you could, but that doesn't mean that anything's going to happen. <laughs> um, right. That's... But, I, and I think this, I mean, this ties beautifully into the Enneagram because the, the Enneagram is showing us the nine ways in which we are losing contact with that part, with that deep part of ourself. It's the way that our childhood self has learned to survive and to um, get the thing that we think we don't have. Ashley, you mentioned that you have, uh, you're in that three space. Type three is focused on uh, striving to feel successful, striving to feel um, outstanding, because at a deep layer, at a deep level, they don't feel like, if, if they aren't doing the successful things that are making them appear successful, then no one will value them, and no one will see them as 
the wonderful, valuable person that they are. Very so there's a there's a lot of shame involved in that. And if and if I'm not doing something, then I'm not anyone. There's um, there's this concept of they've drafted on a fake heart, the performative heart, in order to be liked and accepted. But no one they they rarely let anyone see their actual heart because they're scared of it being hurt. Yeah. So for me, um, being a number three is been. A lot to come to terms with, I think. I think, like I spoke a little bit about that inner child. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, you know, I grew up as a very low income woman of color or child of color at that mm-hmm. point. So, and I and I was a part of a, a part of Fresno that part of it is a, is a little bit higher and part of it's a little bit lower. I lived in the Tower District area, but of course you have Van Ness. Um, and you have everyone who lives in Fig Garden all attending the same schools. So that was that was hard to come to terms with as as a child of recognizing, wait, not everyone has a house like me. Not everyone mm. has a mom who doesn't work. Um, not everyone's on government assistance like me and has the same struggles as I do socioeconomically. So coming to terms with that as a child, I... I knew that I didn't want to be in that situation. So mm. I had to really look at like, what ways can I achieve success? What ways can I become better? And if I don't take care of myself, I can take it way, way too far. I mean, this is like working at midnight, over overextending myself, taking yeah. on opportunities because I see that they will benefit me, but I'm, I'm like, bandwidth is super small. Yeah. So I have to always check myself and think, Think about how I can do do what I'm capable of, but not take on too much and really looking at mm. how far I can take my productivity. Because I can I am probably one of the most productive people I know. And I don't say that to be like, ooh, I'm the most it's because I have this need that is always inside of me of like do more, mm-hmm. be more. And Coming to terms with that is really hard, Seth. Yeah. Give me some advice. <laughs> well, yeah, um, make me better. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, there it is. Um, you don't have to be better because you is. already are everything that you need to be. It's it's mm-hmm. the it's the belief that you don't have the thing that you don't have the value. Instead of instead of operating from the inside out of I have value, therefore I will give value. It's I need to do all these things so I can gather value and put it inside of me. And it is uh, threes have this low grade anxiety, um, which is representation of that that connection to the point six of I have to keep moving and like all these moving pieces. And if anything drops, then that means my value drops. I do. I do yeah. want to make a point. Sorry, um, because I feel like what I said about government assistance and not feeling good enough might come off as if like I think it isn't good enough. So I think it's important to make a point from an objective point of view. Yes, you're right. Being on government assistance, it, there's nothing wrong with that. But from your subjective point of view, as a as a small child, without all the information that you have now, it. That's that's how you perceived it. And again, we can't blame you for perceiving it that way. That's how we all grow up. That's how we develop our enneotype is because we don't we don't have all the information that we have now. And so we just make a decision that makes the most sense at the time. And and for you at that time, it's just like I need I need to not appear to be this way. 
And then there really are biases around government assistance that are not thought out, that are systemic. They're systemic biases. Then there's a reason that women with young children need government assistance. And those that government assistance actually is a gigantic advantage to our culture and our world because it allows women to provide resources to children that they're taking care of in ways that they wouldn't be able to if they had to leave them or take them with them to work. And I we had a conversation about this, how your grandmother took her babies to work in the fields. And I know that story because it's a common story in the Central Valley where we have, you know, we're the breadbasket of the world. And oftentimes babies were cared for in the fields as their mamas and their grandmas and worked. So this is again, that story of oppression and intergenerational trauma related to gender and how this particular responsibility of taking care of children has is imbalanced and has landed on women and then we make it and then we make women feel bad that we're helping to support raising all of our children. I mean in a, in the world where we think children are children, we need to be taking care of all of our children and we support women and men to do that, you know. That yeah. I I'd like to see that shift um in our world. Yeah, I totally think that we should shift our way of thinking around those who are receiving government assistance. Like I can speak firsthandedly. Um mm-hmm. Oppression happened in my life. Stereotypes happened in my life because I was a brown little girl in government assistance. That definitely impacted the way I saw the world. But if we were to shift the way that we see that, imagine what type of or how that would have changed my experience. It, I may have been different. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I, I think the more that we start to accept that oppression happens to people of color, violence happens to people of color, and start to move forward as just a collective group, we'll see more shifts in the way that we see. I don't know where I'm going with this, but... Yes, 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 yes. It leads leads right into resiliency and optimism. And absolutely, if we shift that you were a brown little girl on government assistance, you would be different. That does not mean that you would be better because look at the phenomenal woman that you are. And you were a brown little girl on government assistance and you've grown up into a powerhouse young woman, mother, contributing to the world in all kinds of ways. And you're still very, I mean, you're still a young woman. And that is resilience. That means the ability to overcome adversity. Look at the adversity that you have overcome. And it's the power of of resiliency. And one of the things that has struck me in this this episode and this these conversations are that all three of us have these really interesting stories of intergenerational trauma. Seth's with, you know, historic Nazi Germany. Me with the the Dust Bowl and migration within the United States. And my dad's lived, you know, suffered extreme poverty and a lot of trauma as well but still from a very different landscape 
than uh, Ashley's grandfather, who probably would have been a similar age as my father, coming from Mexico and escaping a war, and then, but also being an immigrant, a person of color, and trying to survive without much of a support system as he landed in the United States, all reveal one common thread, intergenerational trauma that we as individuals have incorporated into who we are. And now, as resilient adults and people, we get to say, wow, that's so cool that we have these different experiences, but look at how we interact with each other and really, it, you know, the little things like the color of our skin is so irrelevant mm-hmm. to our relationships and our thoughts and our minds together as friends and yeah. coworkers. Ashley, thank you so much for hopping on today. And thank you for for doing your work, for for dealing with the intergenerational trauma that you're, that's showing up in your life. That's, it's amazing. And definitely an inspiration for a lot of people out there. Could you give us, just give us, give the people out there one way in which they can start working on uh, discovering the intergenerational trauma and how to start working through it? I think Dr. V touched on, it's not about what's wrong with you, but it's about what happened to you. So really owning that story and just coming to terms with it, facing it in the mirror and telling yourself that no matter what, you're going to take one day at at a time to take one step at a time and just keep plugging along. And no matter where you are in your journey, be proud of that because we all have healing at different ways. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Seth, for sharing your story. That was an amazing story too. And it really is so powerful that there's so much information and depth within each of us as individuals Mm -hmm. that we really barely scratch the surface in our relationships. And so what's important in terms of resilience, we already know is relationships, 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 and finding the people who love us and who we can love and who then create that circle of support. And it has nothing to do with our physical characteristics. It's all about our emotional sides of being human. All right, so with this, thank you so much, Ashley, for being here. Seth, it's always great to see your beautiful face on Fridays. (laughs) And so with that, Everybody go out and leave a life print. And I look forward to seeing, hearing, or I look forward to being with you next time. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a lot of cuts, huh? <laughs> do you want me to I do look, it again? You know, just, just go do something. Bye. <laughs> okay. awesome. All right. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. 
We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life's stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana, with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials 